You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today, well, Christian apologetics is a favorite topic of mine, as you can imagine. And today, we're combining it with another favorite topic of mine, which you might think, how can these two be related? Well, we're going to find out how. And that's video games. See, it started a, a few months ago. Someone gifted me a copy of a book. Console Wars on the Kindle, which was about the battle between Nintendo and Sega, the battle that defined a generation. And indeed it did. I was a Nintendo guy all the way through, okay, just so you know where I stood. And today in our house, we have Nintendo products, but we also have a PlayStation 4. We'll be getting into that soon. But in the book, before too long, Christianity does show up. Like you read that. The game Castlevania was called that because the original name was to be Dracula Satanic Castle, and there was a Christian economy that said, no, we're not doing that. And he stayed in the gaming business until Mortal Kombat came out, and he said, I can't do this now. But Christianity did have a great impact on what was going on. So I thought, why not do a show on this kind of topic? So I looked and said, are there any real scholars out there, PhDs and such, who are actually doing something on Christianity and video games? Well, I found one. And I got in touch with him, and he sent me his book, and he was very happy to come on. His name is Kevin Scutt. He's the Associate Dean of the School of the Arts, Media, and Culture, and Professor of Media and Communication at Trinity Western University in Langley, British Columbia, Canada. He's the author of a book of Games and God, a Christian exploration of video games, which is what we're talking about today. And he spends his spare time playing Mario Kart, King's Quest, and Overcooked with his three daughters. Dr. Scott, welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. <laughs> yeah, I hope we're not interrupting your gaming time. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't spend all day long gaming, just a part of each day. <laughs> yeah. So, um, tell us a little bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing, in case my audience doesn't know who you are. Yeah, uh, so I uh, was uh, teaching at uh, schools for missionary kids overseas in the late 90s and uh, teaching high schoolers. And I thought, you know, actually, I kind of want to teach at a higher level as much as I'm enjoying the high school level. And so I started looking into graduate programs. And uh, I'd initially thought about getting into history. And one of my old professors talked me into doing communication studies. And so when I went to graduate school at University of Iowa, I had a very, very vague idea of what I was going to do. I, I I was interested when I was an undergrad in studying Disney a little bit, and I thought, well, maybe I'll do something with that. But I didn't have any real ideas, and I didn't have any theories that I was interested in. I just, I didn't really know much of anything. And in one of my very first uh, classes, my, one of my favorite professors, the one of the people who turned out to be one of my favorite professors, got up and 
looked around the room, and a lot of us were newer graduate students, and he said, you know, you're, you're going to be doing this for a long time. You're going to be studying for a long time. So if you're going to study, study something you love. And that was the moment where I stopped, and I thought, huh, I wonder if they let you study computer games. Uh, and it, it turns out that uh, they do. <laughs> wow. So, uh, so I, at that time, I, I thought, well, maybe I should look into this. Is there any academic work on this? And as it turns out, that was when the, the field, the academic field that, that today is called game studies, was really just starting up. And so uh, ever since the early 2000s, I have been uh, reading and writing and, and publishing in the area of, of game studies and basically just looking at... Um, uh, at uh, media and specifically what video games have to tell us about how our culture is shifting and 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 what it means and uh, uh, I actually started working on uh, of games and God um, after one of my former professors at, at Calvin College suggested well you know there's not a lot of Christian writing in this area so maybe this is something that you should look at and so that's what I published in uh, uh, the very end of 2012, early 2013. So uh, that's that's where the book comes from as well. And no doubt this research requires a whole lot of a first-hand experience on a topic, doesn't it? It absolutely does. You you can't study something that you don't touch. So, uh, <laughs> we, yes, we, I do. We, I do play games. Yes, we appreciate your sacrifice for the kingdom. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> now, I <clears throat> I understand that you've usually begun your classes asking students what games they're playing. So I figured maybe if you want some insight into where I'm coming from this, I could tell you what games I'm currently playing right now. And uh, I don't know if there was any connection between them all and such, but maybe we can find something. Right. But um, I usually do play word games like Words with Friends, Word Streak, and Hanging with Friends. And I still play Pokemon Go, but for main Games I'm focusing on right now. See, on my phone, I'm playing Final Fantasy Brave Exvius. On my computer that I've got downloaded from Steam, I'm playing Final Fantasy 13. And on the PSP, since I'm playing that for handheld right now, I'm playing the, the sequel to Final Fantasy Dissidia, Final Fantasy Dissidium, something of that sort. So now, I'm not sure if there's any connection between all of those games, but maybe if we could look closely, we could find something. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it sounds like you're a Final Fantasy fan. <laughs> Which is exactly why we have a PlayStation 4. Yes. <laughs> Final yes, Fantasy and great. Kingdom Hearts, exactly. There we go. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. For me, I've been playing video games as long as I can remember on system. I don't think you mentioned the book, but the old ColecoVision system. Sure. Yeah, yeah, I actually have one at the university. I have a collection of old game systems that I bring out when I when I teach my video games in culture course and and uh, we're doing that right now and there's a ColecoVision in my building right now right next to the Atari and the Intellivision as well. If you set me down in front of a game ladybug, you will never see me again. <laughs> <laughs> now, you talked about the intersection of games and culture. So I'd like to read you this paragraph that you talked about that you found in an article here talking about how Society is fearing the new technology and such. Video games are not understood by the present generation of adults. They are new, they make an enormous appeal to children, and they present ideas and situations that parents may not like. 
Consequently, when parents think of the welfare of their children who are exposed to these comparing situations, they wonder about the effects of games upon the ideals and behaviors of their children. Do the games really influence children in any direction? Are their conduct, ideals, and attitudes affected by the games? Are there parts which are objectionable to adults understood by children, or at least by very young children? Do children eventually become sophisticated and grow superior to games? Are the emotions of children harmfully excited? In short, just what effect do video games have upon children of different ages? You know, that's a pretty hard critique, and I mean, we, we've all heard some before, so when does this come from? Is it 1990s, 2000s? When is it exactly? Well, I love that quote because, uh, as, as you know, if you've read yep. the book, that comes from the 1930s, uh, and it's not actually about video games, it's about films, mm-hmm. uh, which, which tells you something, because it sounds exactly like something that you would have heard in the last even 10 years. It wouldn't have been surprising to hear mm-hmm. something like that. Uh, and yet... Uh, We've been saying things kind of like that for at least, uh, you know, 80 years. And, and uh, really, you could probably find similar critiques more than 100 years ago in the late 1800s when people were uh, complaining about dime novels, uh, mm-hmm. westerns. Uh, yeah. there, there were people that were worried about the effect of westerns on, on uh, young people as well. And so I love that quote simply because it shows us that in some ways what we're dealing with is not – culturally speaking, all that new. Yeah. Now, of course, we do want to be careful with all this. We're not going to be getting up here and saying, hey, video games, anything goes, all is good, as long as you enjoy it. But at the same time, we don't want to stand and say, everything is of the devil, and you must get rid of it right now. Absolutely. And I, I like that you point out that something being Christian doesn't mean that it has to, for instance, explicitly mention Jesus numerous yes. times. My wife was listening to uh, something like, you make the dead come alive. Eric Reddy, I think, does it. And she said, featuring 21 pot artists. And I thought, that name sounds familiar. I'm sure I've heard it before. And they're actually a popular band we've heard on the local secular radio station. And they're sure. singing a secular song. But every member of the band, it says, past and present, is a Christian. And their songs have a lot of Christian theology. But if you listen, you're not going to hear Jesus mentioned once. Yes. Yeah, and I think it's the same kind of thing when we're looking at any culture. Um, the, the real measure is is not always uh, a question of uh, explicit mention of theological concepts, but uh, is this culture that uh, helps us to build the kingdom? Is this uh, is this uh, culture that uh, helps us to understand uh, love and healing and, and health and forgiveness and and uh, the kinds of things that God's kingdom is built around, mm-hmm. uh, or does it does it hurt us in that regard? And and uh, we could even argue that some things that explicitly mention Jesus are not always uh, as helpful as as they think that as they they seem to be on the surface. So uh, it's it's really uh, important that we we not make it a litmus test of how many times you mention the word Jesus or you know the church or God or anything like that, but more a question of. Is, is this a piece of culture that is about healing, about love, about health, about joy, about self-control? Uh, you know, the, the fruits of the Spirit, right? Yeah, I mean, off the top of my head, I'm thinking, for works of Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Muslims, they mention Jesus several times, but you're certainly not going to find good things that would build you up for the kingdom of God there. Yeah, it, it depends on uh, what exactly you're talking about. But, uh, yeah, they're, they're, that often... Uh, 
even people who are Christians will say things that are not always uh, helpful, and because we are not perfect, and uh, not everything that we do uh, as Christians is is perfect, and so uh, I think it's it's important that we don't tie ourselves down to an unrealistic standard. So, since we're talking about video games, we I want to ask a question that could seem pretty obvious, but at the same time, could be pretty complex. If we're going to understand video games, I think what we need to ask first is. What is a video game? <laughs> well, uh, it's funny. I just did a lecture on this the other day, uh, but we'll, we'll keep it short. Um, so uh, games uh, in general are uh, systems of, of rules that are operated by uh, players uh, in order to achieve a, a goal, basically. So if you think about any kind of game, like a Monopoly or, or a chess or something like that. A sporting event, even. Yeah, absolutely. Board games. Um, uh, there's uh, parts, you know, pieces. Uh, and if we're talking about a video game, it's, you know, think Mario Kart uh, or Tetris. There are pieces in the game. There are objects in the game. And they're not things that you can just do whatever you want with. They're governed by artificial rules, right? And the, uh -huh. the goal of, of interacting in that game is to produce a, a particular kind of outcome. So in Mario Kart, you want to win the game. In Tetris, you want to get a high score. And in chess, you want to defeat the other person. Uh, and uh, uh, I think that uh, there are some games that are sort of, you know, uh, not don't always fall into a neat definition. I mean, you look at a, a role-playing game and often, uh, especially open-ended role-playing games like yeah. massively multiplayer online games, they don't have an end condition. It's not like it ever stops. But there's little things that you can constantly go towards. I want this piece of armor, or I want to build this for my guild, or I want to you know, finish this raid, or, or whatever. Gain this uh, lever. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, all of those things are, are uh, you know, um, part of a game. So uh, video games are that. And then to make it a video game as opposed to a game in general, um, usually we're assuming there's some kind of computer involved. I mean, strictly speaking... Mm -hmm. Uh, a video game should involve a screen, but what, what's kind of interesting is there are some computerized games that are audio only, uh, and those are very unusual, but they still do exist, and uh, I would argue that they still sort of count under the same sort of level as video games. Uh, so uh, usually, uh, so a video game involves a computer in some way, right. basically. A game involves a computer in some way, and there are actually some really interesting games that um, sort of are a mix of real life and uh, computer where, you know, the computer gives you instructions and you go somewhere in real life. Uh, so that's another kind of hybrid sort of thing. Uh, the, the whole field of um, alternate reality games where they take reality and, and put some extra graphics or a story over top of it. And is that a computer game or is that a video game or not? And that's, you know, that's a bit debatable, but... Uh, the bulk of what we're talking about when we're talking about a video game is, is this, you know, a system of, of rules with interacting parts that has players, uh, quantifiable outcomes, and has and, and you need a computer to play it, basically. Some kind of computer. Yeah, when you talk about the hybrid games, I did think of Pokemon Go immediately. Yes, that's a great example. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I think that some people who say they might not have never played a video game or such, if they're seeing that they're playing Words with Friends or someone, they're technically right. playing a video game, aren't they? Yes, they are. It's, I mean, it, it's really just Scrabble, right, uh, yeah. in, in a computer form, but that doesn't mean that it's, it's not a video game because it involves a computer. And, and especially, you know, the, the, the key with Words with Friends is that you can play people from all over the world, uh, and, and that wouldn't be possible without the computer. So that's pretty important. 
Now, I'm thinking of going to the mall after this interview today. I understand it's Batman Day, and my wife wants me to pick up a free comic, especially since it includes Harley Quinn. By the way, this is assuming that the Christian numerologists are wrong, the world doesn't come to an end today. I'm I'm not really <laughs> counting on that. <laughs> okay. Let's suppose I'm here at the mall, and I go into GameStop, and I get a game, and I come home, which isn't likely to happen, we don't have a lot of money, but I get home, and I stick it into my PS4 or whatever, and decide to play it. How should I begin evaluating this game? Well, gosh, there's so many different uh, ways to do it. I think I think the important thing to start with is that there isn't a single right way uh, for Christians to interact with, with video games, because there are so many different games. And I think that depending on where we are in our life and, and at that particular moment in time, we appreciate the same thing in different ways and they can have different impacts on us. So I don't think that, uh, you know, there's there's one r- right way to do it, but I can suggest some of the things that I would be sort of thinking about as I'm playing the game. Okay. Um, uh, so when I'm playing a game, one of the things that I'm thinking about is the actual artistic quality of the game itself. And when we're talking about that, we're talking about, is this a well-made game? Is Are there good mechanics? Uh, is it polished? Uh, is it fun to play? Or is it thought-provoking? Because not all games are fun, but they're still good sometimes. Um, is, is, there, is, is this a piece of good craftsmanship? And I think that, you know, as a Christian, I think one of the things that we are called to uh, is is excellence, uh, and that includes artistic excellence. And there are games that are uh, well well made, and there are games that are not well made. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that uh, spiritually Christians should not be afraid to evaluate. Uh, you know, looking at a game and saying it's well made. Now, that's not where the evaluation should stop. And I think for many gamers, that is where the evaluation stops. Is it an enjoyable thing to play? Is it well made? Is it well crafted? Uh, I think we have to think beyond that as well. Um, so uh, then I think about uh, the, the the stories and the world that the game evokes, uh, and uh, and there uh, we we get into a much uh, fuzzier kind of thing where it's there's not like a, a list of things to check off, but um, I'm sort of evaluating what kind of world does the game evoke or create or uh, allow the player to travel through and and uh, what kinds of stories uh, is it telling in that world and those are two actually distinct things um, the game world uh, is, is sort of the environment the uh, the people that are there the atmosphere that it creates I would argue that every game has a world even simple ones like you know Tetris is just falling blocks from the sky it's a it's not a particularly complex world. Uh, if you play, you know, Elder Scrolls, Skyrim, or Final Fantasy, or something like that, those are giant, sprawling worlds with uh, lots of characters in different imaginary locations, and so they're, they're quite a bit different. But I would argue that all games, even the simplest, have a world, and that world has a kind of atmosphere, and it can often have a certain set of messages to it. You know, when, when a world works a certain way or not, and, and not another way, it's, it's a comment or it's something that uh, teaches or, or uh, encourages us to think in a particular direction. So I'm looking at the world, and then, of course, I'm looking at the story. And in this sense, it's no different than, you know, watching a movie or a television show or reading a book or something like that, uh, reading a novel um, or, a, you know, a graphic novel. Uh, 
uh, I'm looking at the the narrative as well. And when I'm looking at this world and when I'm looking at this narrative, I'm I'm again measuring it against the kinds of things that I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. Uh, uh, is this a world or a story that encourages uh, peace, that encourages love, that encourages healing, that encourages forgiveness, that encourages self-control, that encourages joy, that encourages creativity? Um, and uh, is, is, it, uh, is it doing those things? Um, and it's important to note that that doesn't mean that uh, that a game has to have a happy theme to be worthwhile. Um, the fact is that in, in this life, we encounter a lot of suffering and we encounter a lot of difficulty, and our art should be grappling with that. And so that means that there will be games that are worth playing that do ultimately encourage the growth of, of healthy habits and virtues and, and attitudes and uh, on the surface of it look pretty dark. Uh, and and so I, I, I'm not necessarily, for example, against the genre of horror games, even though personally I will say that I, I can't do horror myself. I'm just too sensitive. You know, I, like I, it, they freak me out and I, I can't play them. But, and I'll start it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but I think in many ways, horror grapples with evil in a, in a very uh, powerful way, in a very uh, stark way, in a way that does not uh, sh shove evil under the carpet, but sort of faces it head on. And I think that sometimes, anyways, uh, it can be done in a way that, that uh, encourages us to really identify evil in our lives and in our world and, and, uh, and help us to, to live better because of that. Um, so I so I, I look for the world, I look for the stories, I look for whether it it's you know in tune with those themes, and then of course, um, when I do find traces of ideas and themes that are very uh, clearly um, spiritual, that also is something that I, I consider. Where you know what kind of religious narrative is it weaving, um, you know underneath uh, uh, underneath the story, uh, and and there are games that very much. The Western literature as a whole, whether we're talking about games or novels or, or movies, often have Christ-like themes, stories of sacrifice, uh, and uh, that, that evoke the Christ story because, you know, Western culture has been so heavily influenced by uh, the, the Christian story. Uh, and so, so you can see things like that in games as well. They're rarely very perfect metaphors, but uh, but uh, there's there's often some echoes, anyways, of, of uh, Christian stories that I think can be really uh, positive and powerful as well. So uh, those are all things that I, I look for. Uh, there's there's a lot more to talk about than that. I mean, if you look at the yeah. book, of course, every chapter yeah. sort of deals with a, a different topic. But those are some of the things that I'm thinking about uh, in general when I'm playing games. Yeah, something I'm also thinking about at this point is. What happens if, I mean, can you get to enjoy a game as a good Christian, even if you don't agree with a lot of its main message and such? I mean, for me, one key example would be Final Fantasy X. When this mm -hmm. one was coming out, I remember reading a story about the uh, young Blitzball player named Titus who's caught in a battle where he has to stop this mindless destroying force from taking over a world called Sin. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, did, did I read that correctly? <laughs> and I read it again. Yeah, yeah, the enemy is sin this yes. time. And how incredible 
That was. Now, I enjoy Final Fantasy X very, very much, but at the same time, its answer to the question of sin was terrible. Now, it, yes. It's not a Christian answer. And yes. something I've noticed with the Final Fantasy games is usually whenever the church shows up in Final Fantasy, it's evil somewhere. Yes. And I think, you know, I, I still enjoy the game, but I'm also thinking, you know, if a church keeps seeing, if Japan keeps seeing the church as evil here, maybe we should, you know, learn something from this. Yes, yes, absolutely, and and this is really important to me as a Christian in general. Um, we, uh, I mean, there's two things I can say about that. First of all, there are things that Christians can learn from people who are not Christian. Uh, uh, and, and positive things. Uh, I, I do not view people from other religious faiths as my enemies. I view them as uh, people who uh, maybe understand uh, God in a different way, and, and I hope that, uh, uh, that we can come to a, a closer agreement at some point. But uh, they, they often are holding some, some part of the truth, and we, we should be open to that. Uh, to, to listening to that. That doesn't mean that we're shedding our own Christian faith uh, mm. in the process, but, uh, you know, uh, most major world religions, uh, for example, uh, preach that we shouldn't be murdering people. Yeah. That yeah. is something that we agree on, right? Yeah. And so I, th I think sometimes mm. that we can learn things from other perspectives, but I also think that even when it is something that we disagree with, as you say, we do need to be able to listen to that, and we need to be able to understand that, because we need to understand where they are and what they're thinking and, and what they're believing in order to be able to speak to them uh, and to be able to treat them as, as full human beings as they are. They're all children of God, uh, and uh, we, need to, we need to be talking to them. And I think Christians are so afraid of... Um, Oh, how do I say this? There, there are reasons to be afraid of messages in the media. The good reasons and and things that were reasons that we we should be cautious and careful with what's what's happening in the media because uh, yes, we can be led astray. We can you know go in directions that are not particularly healthy and and happy. But at the same time, um, I think that uh, that that fear um, keeps many Christians from. Uh, engaging things that will help them be in the world better, that will help them. We are not supposed to be of the world, but we are supposed to be in there, and we're supposed to be able to talk with people and mm -hmm. and be able to, to understand them and to be able to speak with them where they are. And I think that sometimes when we see something that is uh, either non-Christian or in some cases anti-Christian, our first impulse is to cover our eyes and close our ears and um, because we're worried about corruption. My personal feeling is that if uh, we are uh, strong in the faith and the Holy Spirit is with us, that uh, we need to be able to engage uh, those things and understand them. And, and as you say, uh, looking at Final Fantasy, and, and a lot of the Japanese games do uh, very interesting and to westernize very strange uh, mergings of different religions, a sort of syncretist kind of approach to things that uh, I would never follow, but it's interesting to see that because it helps you understand where Japanese culture is. There's this deep interest in spirituality, but they, they're they not, it, it, when you play those games and you really look at them seriously, like you did with Final Fantasy X, you understand something about that, that culture's, um, yeah, distrust of institutional religion. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, if you were going to go and talk to that culture as a Christian, 
that's very, very important and useful information to know. So, uh, yeah, I don't think we should run away from this stuff. I do think that uh, that there are times when maybe we should avoid it for sure, uh, and and we have to sort of measure our own weaknesses, but uh, as an individual and as a as a community. But uh, I think that. Uh, Generally speaking, yeah, we should be able to play those games, and we should able be able to recognize that often they're very beautiful and powerful yeah. pieces of art, right? Like yeah. Final Fantasy X is a is a well done game. I haven't played that one myself, but I've read enough reviews and enough about it to know that it's it's a very very well done game. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, we should be able to enjoy that while critically engaging the stuff that we don't necessarily agree with. Yeah, you know, my parents got me Final Fantasy XV for Christmas, and when Ali uh, watched me play it, we'd be looking like. Wow, these graphics! This this is so incredible and such. Yes, absolutely. Terrible story in that one, but the game itself was very good. And mm-hmm. you know, something I'm thinking about uh, while also thinking about how the Japanese do things. It, I think it's mm-hmm. worth knowing that it's a shame that the Japanese people reach so many with their culture, and we have so little Christian emphasis on sending missionaries in such Japan, but less than 1% of Japan is Christian. That, that's mm-hmm. a major lacking, I think, on our part. Mm-hmm. Yes, well, there's a long history with that, and, uh, I mean, uh, we could we could do an entire podcast on that. The The history of Christianity in, in Japan has been a very troubled one, and uh, uh, a lot of uh, difficult... Uh, Moves. It's it's a difficult place to do evangelization, and you and you can see that in the in the video game culture too. Yep. Uh, we have had uh, Japanese Christian students at our university at uh, Trinity Western University in in uh, BC, and and uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's a very different kind of uh, culture, and uh, uh, learning to evangelize there is a is a is a lo- lifetime's work, I would say. Absolutely. Now let's uh, talk about other themes also. If other games like, say, Legend of Zelda, as well, one of the essential classics of video games, my add. <laughs> and to this day, I've still got to yet to play Breath of the Wild because we don't have a system for it yet. We can't afford right. it. And excuse me while I go uh, mourn a few minutes here over the, the great sorrow that I'm having in my life right now. But <laughs> uh, I mean, and something else that I read in your book was how you uh, would stay up late, I think, in college playing Magic the Gathering with your mm-hmm. friends and such, which is mm-hmm. exactly what I was playing in high school as mm-hmm. well. So that gives us to us, I mean, you talk about spirituality. A lot of these games have magic. Mm-hmm. Should we be concerned? Well, it it depends on what you mean. Uh, it, it depends on what kind of game we're talking about and what kind of magic we're talking about and how the game handles it and, and things like that. But in general, my experience has been no. Uh, and th- this is not a denial of the reality of spiritual forces, just so that we're all clear. Right. Um, I do believe that there are dark spiritual forces, and I believe that... Um, the the Bible makes it pretty clear, and Christian tradition makes it pretty clear that you know, real magic is something that uh, uh, is not a healthy spiritual thing for Christians. And I mean, there's any number of reasons why we could make that case. I mean, um, I think that uh, you know, one of the biggest conceits of magic uh, in in real life is that it, it turns spirituality into technology. Essentially, that if I you know, push this button, I get this result. And magic is the same kind of thing to control spiritual forces in order to achieve what we want. And and that's a conceit that 
denies the sovereignty of God. And uh, so that, that's, you know, in real life, I think that's a, that's a, that's a concern. Uh, but magic in, in stories and magic in games is a different sort of thing. Um, there's often a sort of superficial resemblance between, uh, you know, what people try to do in a game with magic and what people try to do in real life. But um, I think that uh, that what we actually see in most games uh, is um, <laughs> is not anything like real magic. Uh, most games that have magic and spells have things that you can actually manipulate as a player. Well, anything that you can actually manipulate as a player in a game is a piece of code, which means that it's quantified. It's a set of numbers. And uh, if you actually look at most video games that have uh, magic in them, they have things like duration and effect range and, and effect area and uh, you know how many mana points it costs and things like that. That's not magic. That is, in fact, technology at that point. It's, it's closer to an actuarial table from an insurance company than it is, uh, you know, real magic. There's nothing spiritual or mystical about it. It's, it's a, it, you could just as easily replace it with a gun, uh, and it would functionally be the same way. It's just dressed up a little bit differently. Um, I also think that there's a strong tradition of uh, magic in a literary sense, of being a way for us to grapple with wonder, with with mystery in, in stories. And, and so, um, you know, you look at the works of someone like C.S. Lewis, who was a thoroughgoing Christian, and he, he leaned on this ancient pagan mythological tradition and saw no discordance there with his own, you know, his own faith, uh, writing his own explicitly Christian books using some of the same themes. I mean, there's all these Greek mythological figures in his in his uh, in his works, and and uh, uh, some uh, you know Nordic uh, ones as well. And uh, uh, magic was a way of playing, with, uh, you know, creatively with an imaginary world. Uh, and I, I guess the other argument that people will often bring in is that, well, if you play with magic in a game, then you 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 get confused with reality, and uh, there's very, very, very little evidence that suggests that that, in fact, happens on anything like close to a regular basis. Mm -hmm. um, when we find examples of people confusing fantasy and reality, whether it be a movie or a game or anything else, uh, it's almost always related to a, a very strong mental illness, uh, uh, which then brings up the whole question of, <laughs> is it the book, is it the game, or is it, in fact, the mental illness that the, that's to blame here? And yeah. I would argue that it's the latter in most cases. So um, I, I think that we can look at at, uh, at games with magic and, and themes of magic, and, and I think they, they can be very positive uh, to, to interact with. They can be creative and imaginative. Um, I think where we, we need to be careful is that some games have very dark spiritual themes mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and and spiritual themes that, that dwell on decay, on uh, despair, on uh, horror. And again, horror can point us to the reality of evil and therefore help us change in, in everyday life. But I think sometimes there's a sort of an unhealthy fascination with it. Like it, it's, it's a really cool thing in and of itself. And um, Whenever magic or any theme in a video game points in that direction, I think we're heading in an, un an unhealthy direction. And uh, 
Um, I think that uh, uh, that can be an issue with spiritual themes in games where uh, there, there's a sort of um, unhealthy fascination with the darkness. And, and uh, that's a problem. Uh, so I'm not saying that it's never a problem, uh, but at the same time, uh, I think that there is space for Christians to engage magic in games and uh, for it to be a positive thing. You know, I'm z- hearing this and I'm thinking a couple of things. First off, that this can apply to any form of media, books, Absolutely. TV, anything like that. And second, when you talk about the stories being made up and such, I immediately thought of the famous porting report. I was supposed to have all these connections between Dungeons and Dragons and Satanism. And I've even heard right. that, that, that the person who made Dungeons and Dragons is actually a Christian as yes. well. And yeah. so many people are still live by that. Like, it's a golden standard. I mean, I grew up playing Dungeons and Dragons, and I never started thinking that way. Right. Yeah. And, and, uh, I think there was some misunderstanding and a lot of uh, social panic. You, you, that, that quote that we had at the beginning about, uh, you know, uh, video games, parents don't understand them and all the rest of that stuff and found out it's from the 1930s. This pattern is something that, that shows up every time a new cultural phenomenon shows up, that uh, there is both a, an, an enthusiastic embrace of it and then also this really, like, knee-jerk uh, reaction of, oh, my goodness, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to our culture. Uh, and the same thing happened with Dungeons and Dragons. It was this new thing. People didn't fully understand it, and they reacted very negatively to it. And I think what a lot of people misunderstood is they thought that the players actually, you know, engaged in magic themselves rather mm-hmm. than telling a story about an imaginary world in which there is magic. Yeah. Uh, and and in fact, some of the early manuals sort of blur the the lines a little bit. Uh, uh, in some of their descriptive portions, but I don't know of any role-playing gamers who ever actually did anything like mm-hmm. that, uh, and I've never heard of any reports of that. Uh, so, no, I do I do not think that uh, it was leading Christians uh, down a dark path in the way that many of the advocates uh, uh, said. I think that a lot of that was often based on um, a misunderstanding of what role-playing game was like. And if we're going to be talking though, about Christian character in video games, there's one topic that must obviously come up. That one of my favorite memories I have growing up with video games is when I was in college, my brother-in-law got me together one day with him and two of his friends, and we ended up playing GoldenEye together uh, all yeah. day. And the whole classic <laughs> shoot 'em up. And when I got a Street Fighter 2 Turbo for Christmas. My brother-in-law played about 70 or 75 rounds or so immediately. And when it came to my bachelor party, I had one of the tamest bachelor parties in the world, I'm sure, by comparison, because <laughs> we got together at the apartment of one of my best men. He lived in this fancy, fancy apartment. He was hired as a living assistant with someone. They had a big screen bear. We played Super Smash Brothers Brawl all <laughs> evening long. Now, all of this sounds like fun, but some people are saying, those games are violent. Violence shows up in video games so much. How can this be a good thing? Yes. And uh, that is one of the two major issues that, uh, I, and I'm sure we're going to get to the other one in a oh, bit. Oh, yes. Uh, uh, the two major issues that, that I, when I speak about video games, that comes up the most often uh, uh, and uh, there's good reason for it. As you say, violence is, in fact, uh, 
a reality uh, of video games. And there's lots of interesting theories about why that's the case. Um, uh, the, 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 one of the arguments is that, especially in the early days of video games, the computers that um, the computers were, were not very powerful, and so you really had to design fairly simple games. And uh, there's, uh, you know, it's very simple to determine whether something is there or not. <laughs> it exists or it doesn't exist. And so, combat where you kill something, it's there and then it's not, uh, is a very simple thing to design. It's a very simple thing to program. And so. Um, you know, that's where that, that theme came from. But I think you can even look further historically. Uh, one of the big roots of video gaming is the wargaming culture. And wargaming culture, you know, has military roots. And uh, so that's another possible reason for it. Uh, uh, association in our culture between masculinity and violence and, and uh, video games are very masculine, uh, uh, have traditionally been a very masculine uh, area. Um so, yeah, it's it's an important thing to deal with because it is something that if you look at the bestsellers, you look at what people are playing, it's, there's frequently violence. Mm -hmm. Before I jump into that, I should note that there are a ton of nonviolent video games out there, a ton of good nonviolent video games. And oh, if yes. you really wanted to, you could spend the rest of your life just with the video games that have been made already that are nonviolent and you would never lack for games. There's just that many out there. And in fact... Some people would say, well, maybe they're out there, but they don't you know, sell that well. Well, that's actually not true. Um, a, a game like Grand Theft Auto makes headlines because, yes, it is like one of the biggest selling games in of all time kind of thing. But it's not the only big seller, right? Tetris is seriously one of the greatest franchises in video game history, and it is completely and utterly nonviolent. Right. Uh -huh. um, and there are a ton of games that have very, very moderate, very tiny amounts of violence. So, Angry for example, oh, sorry, Angry Birds. Yeah. Angry Birds is <laughs> trivial violence, I would mm. say, in that case, or even like Pac-Man. Right. Right. You're going around a maze, and yes, technically, when the ghost hits you, there's some violence there. And when you eat the ghost, there's some violence there. But it's that's very, very. That's a very loose definition of violence at that point, right? It's not very graphic, and a lot of games fall into that category where there's no sort of obsession with with death and destruction and things like that. But it's just sort of a small, very small part of the experience of the game. Um, and so, uh, people who don't know video games very well should really understand this about games. That in fact. It is a huge medium, and it's just like movies. They're not all movies are the same. Not all games are the same. Not all books are the same. Not all you know radio programs are the same. I mean, there's diversity within the world of video games, and not all of them are violent. That having been said, violence is a common thing, and a lot of Christians play games that are pretty violent. You know, Call of Duty. Uh, you mentioned GoldenEye is an older one, right? Uh, right. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of us are playing Overwatch today. Uh, Overwatch is a is a shooter game where you go online and you're you're playing against other people, and it's not a particularly you know gory game. When you shoot people, it's not like there's showers of blood all over the place. But uh, but it's still it's a game about shooting, right? Uh, right. And you eliminate people, they respawn, they come back. Um, so uh, that was a a long way to get to the actual answer. Uh, um, it's it's important to realize that there's probably two lines of thinking that we should be going down here. And one of them is uh, effects. What are the effects of, of doing this? And then the other side is, um, what is the morality of doing this? Okay. Um, 
So we'll start with the effects thing. Um, and the short version of all, there's been a, a fair amount of research over the last decade, maybe decade and a half on the impact of playing violent games on players and, and their levels of, of what we call aggression. Uh, um, and aggression is not quite the same thing as violence. Aggression is, is more about attitude. Um, violence is, do you actually hurt someone, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And aggression is, do you have a more um, uh, aggressive attitude, essentially? You're more likely to want to attack people, to want to do harm or less patient, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, you, it's, it's very, very hard to create a connection between violent game playing and actual violence. There's just not enough violence done to know for sure if there's a really clear connection between the two. So researchers focus instead, instead on aggression with the assumption being that if playing violent games makes you more aggressive, it will also contribute to greater levels of actual violence, right? Uh -huh. um, and uh, what researchers have found is hotly debated. And uh, it really depends on who you look at. So you will look at one set of researchers and they will say, say that there is a clear correlation between playing violent video games and an increase in short-term aggressive attitudes, which is a lot of sort of technical science, social scientific language, but it's important to use that because you, you need to understand they're not claiming a whole bunch of things by saying things that way. They're not saying that there's clear evidence, for example, that if you play violent video games that over time, uh, eventually you will just become a more aggressive person permanently. They actually don't have very much evidence on that, on that score. They don't know what the long-term effects of playing violent video games are. That's not to say that they're necessarily positive or necessarily negative. They simply just don't know. Um, uh, they, there is a group of researchers, though, that are firmly convinced that there's clear evidence for short-term rise in aggression. That is, you play a violent video game, and afterwards your aggression levels rise, at least for a little while. Mm -hmm. Right. However, there are another group of equally credentialed so, uh, psychologists and sociologists out there who, who absolutely believe that there is no clear evidence, that the, the research that the first group of researchers is relying upon is, in fact, deeply flawed research and is not uh, uh, good evidence, basically. Uh, and uh, the debate still rages. When I wrote my book, I was doing research, you know, about, you know, six years ago, five years ago when I was working on this. Um, and the debate is still going back and forth five years later. So it's not like the problem has been solved in the, in, in the ensuing time. Um, I am not a psychologist, so I'm not really uh, qualified to truly evaluate those those uh, the the strengths and weaknesses of those various arguments. So it's hard for me to say absolutely which side is right. But I will say intuitively, and maybe you've you've experienced this too, Nick, uh -huh. um, that there is something to the idea that you know it would raise aggression levels um, simply because. Action games get your heart pounding. It's not even about shooting necessarily. It's just when you're in the middle of a really tense sequence in a game, you get on edge. Uh -huh. <laughs> I mean, that to me just seems fairly intuitive. Like I have become more uh, aggressive and angry uh, with games that are all about jumping rather than shooting, you know, because I keep missing the ledge. Yes. <laughs> yes. You know, you know what the I mean? The struggle right? is real. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
So that that researchers would find that kind of connection seems to be a bit of a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. The, the, the bigger step is, does that actually spill out into everyday interactions? And again, I would say probably on an intuitive level, some level of, yes, that it would, it would encourage, in the short term, it would encourage some irritability, right? Mm-hmm. I, I am like this uh, sometimes when I play a game and I'm trying very hard and I lose, I get grumpy. Uh, yes. That is not a new thing. People get grumpy playing sports too, mm-hmm. and they get grumpy because they're reading a story and some and their favorite character dies, or you know, like there's any number of things like that. And I, I guess I I would say that probably video games, violent video games, probably do have short-term effects uh, in, in increasing aggression, but I'm not sure that it's such a big deal. <laughs> it's it's not new. It's not unusual. I mean. Uh, you know, people have read books and then gone off and assassinated people because of it. Uh, and, and we don't talk about, you know, this is a problem. We, sh- we really need to rethink this whole reading thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think it's, it's fair to question on the effects of violent games. And I, I would say, like, I'm, I'm talking to parents. Um, uh, I think it's pretty important to look at what your kids are doing after games. If mm-hmm. after they play games, they jump up and they start, you know, beating each other, um, that's maybe an indication that you need to have a conversation with your kids about if this continues, then you're not playing these games anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, or uh, we're just going to restrict the amount that you're playing them. Or we come up with some system that after you're done playing with these games, you have to go do quiet time for, you know, 15 or 20 minutes before you actually keep playing with each other in real life. You know, this is it's not a um, it's not a straightforward uh, recommendation one way or the other. It's just something that we need to be aware of and pay attention to. So the effects thing for me is there's a lot of common sense stuff there. Uh, and I don't the research hasn't really given a clear indication that effects are are definitely there or definitely not. You know, something um, I've been thinking about when you talk about the yeah. short-term effects here is that if my wife and I are watching a TV show or a movie and all of a sudden here comes a powerful romance scene, yeah. I can definitely say for a few minutes after I'm thinking, honey, how would you like to just hit pause and, you know, let's just spend some good quality time together and <laughs> such. I mean, it doesn't yes. mean I, she's going to say, no, her no, now. I'm like, oh, okay, and then go outside and rape the neighbor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. And and that I think that's a that's a really really important uh, point is just because uh, stories and games and, and things like that have an effect on us doesn't mean that uh, um, we can't control them that we can't manage them and that the effects are always negative. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think that uh, uh, you know we, we just have to we just have to monitor we have to be careful yeah. we shouldn't be panicking about it is really what I'm saying mm-hmm. but we also shouldn't say well there's nothing there right right. Um, so the morality question to me is is a much more complicated one, uh, uh, and and this is something that my own work is going into now. Uh, mm-hmm. What I'm particularly interested in is uh, what are people thinking and what is the meaning that they're making out of the actions that they're making in games, and that's that's what I'm I'm working on. Um, one of the challenges with looking at games is that video games will allow us to do a lot of things that are that if they were happening in real life, we would say are immoral, right? right? Uh, there are a lot of games about stealing things. <laughs> uh, stealing is wrong in right. everyday life, but there are a lot of games where basically that's what you're doing pretty much the entire game, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, 
there are uh, games, uh, I mean, that are all about shooting. And, and we would say, uh, at the very least, Christians should be pretty cautious about shooting someone else. Uh, um, and, and there are many Christians who would argue that Christians should be pacifists, that, mm-hmm. you know, the, the example of Christ is, you know, that, that, that no violence should be done by Christians in real life. I'm not a Christian pacifist myself, but I have deep respect for that position because I think that uh, it certainly, you can make a strong scriptural case for it, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, a game like Call of Duty, where you're running around and shooting people, I know it's all military, but it's still, you know, doing a, an enormous amount of damage to other people. Um, uh, you know, at, at the very least, doing that for fun as a Christian should should not make us hesitate. Is that a fair question, Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, this is something I've been grappling with for years and I haven't really totally resolved it. I mean, it, it's not, it's not an easy, uh, question to resolve, but I do think increasingly that a lot of it hinges on what do people understand is happening in the game, right? Um, when we read a book and someone goes and does something in the book, whether it's mm-hmm. good or whether it's bad, um, I think most people are comfortable with the idea that, uh, morally speaking, you have not partaken in that event yourself, mm-hmm. right? So uh, Frodo uh, goes and drops uh, the, the ring uh, in, in Mount Doom. And sorry, spoiler alert for those of you who haven't read Lord of the Rings there. But uh, <laughs> you know, Frodo uh, do- drops the ring in, in Mount Doom. Uh, we read it or we watch it in the movies, but we don't suddenly become more virtuous because of his courage, right? right. Um, because it's someone else, right? Yeah. Where it gets complicated with games is that you're controlling Frodo, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or you're controlling Gollum, or you're controlling, uh, you know, uh, Sauron, or, or whatever else. And, and so the question is then, do you partake in the the morality and uh, whether positive or negative of of that character or not when you're actually doing those actions. And on the face of it, if you're not used to gaming, if you're not a gamer and you're watching someone play something and you're just watching over their shoulder, you might assume that the gamer is in fact sort of thinking that they are... uh, they are effectively that character, or they are partaking in that. Therefore, the actions that are happening there are then clearly, you know, the moral value of them uh, equates to you. So if you go and murder someone in a game, then clearly you have sort of done murder in a, in a sense, right? Um, and, and the problem with this thinking is, and this is what I would call sort of a literal interpretation of games, that what we see on the screen is literally what's happening. Um, and the fact is that nobody actually plays games that way. It's, it's mm-hmm. not, it's never that simple. I mean, it's not hard to refute a basic literalist assumption because the fact is when I shoot someone in a game, no actual living, breathing human being actually gets hurt or animal or anything else. Right. Yeah. There's, so there's, so a shooting in a game is clearly not like shooting uh, in in real life. I, I mean, there's just also, you know, just some really basic things. You're looking at a two-dimensional screen. I mean, maybe mm-hmm. when we start getting into vi- virtual reality, we're, we're sort of dealing with a, a maybe another different level again. But even in virtual reality, 
you don't have the feel of the air on your face. You don't have the smell of the soil. You don't like that. You know that you are not in an actual different space. It's very powerful. I have a virtual reality system, um, but uh, it's still distinct from real life. And the things that happen in the game don't actually impact real physical world at all. So clearly a truly literalist reading of a video game doesn't make any sense. At the same time, the images in the game can't you can't just totally pretend that they're they have no connection to real life because if that was the case why would you why would you not why would you just play a game without guns so I mean, why wouldn't why wouldn't you i mean you could you know replace the guns in call of duty with i don't know pea shooters or or uh you know uh candy shooters or something like that you could do that uh, but nobody would want to do that because it's not cool right right there's certain kind of cool associated with those military weapons. And so the fact is that there is something of a connection between that and real life, because if there wasn't, then people wouldn't be clamoring for games with guns and games with swords and games like that, right? Right. So uh, so clearly there's got to be um, some kind of connection between everyday life. So I think a lot of it hinges on, okay, so what, how do we understand this? And in my research, I found that people take on a lot of different frames. They have different mindsets when they're approaching games. And so sometimes they're thinking like a character in a game. So they pretend that they are actually this person and they make choices on the basis of what that imaginary character would do. It's kind of radical empathy in a way, right? Uh, Role-playing games are like this. I wouldn't shoot someone, but my character would, so my character is going to shoot that person, right? Um Sometimes we think like storytellers. Uh, when we're playing a game, we want the story to go a certain way, and so we make a choice that makes for a good story. One of the people I interviewed in in uh, a project I was doing this spring uh, said that uh, uh, that interesting stories uh, feature bad choices. You know, um, if you if you don't have people doing awful things, then it's a boring story. So. I don't actually want those awful things to happen in real life, but in order to make an interesting story, I am going to make choices where you know my characters do awful things because it makes for a more interesting story. Um, there are sometimes people are uh, often approaching games like competitors that uh, you know there is this scenario and whatever the narrative is, I don't really care. I want to win basically. So right. if I have to shoot someone to win, I'm going to shoot someone to win, and, and it's just about winning the game at that point. And and uh, the, the the narrative actually doesn't matter all that much. Um, there are um, people who play uh, with what I call the tinkerer frame or the the, the Lego player uh, framework. Uh, you know, if my daughter makes a Lego dinosaur, you know, it t- takes the, the pieces and and, and puts uh, puts it together and makes a dinosaur, and then suddenly decides, you know what? Actually, I want this to be an apple, and decapitates the dinosaur and dis- disassembles it and turns it into an apple. We don't go, you monster. How could you kill that that creature like that so heartlessly to make an apple? No, I mean it's it's a bunch of plastic and you're playing with it and just just to mm. see what it can do, right? And a lot of people approach video games with the same kind of mindset. So, you know, a classic example is in the game Fallout 3, uh, where early in the game you're at this this town built around an unexploded nuclear weapon, and the town is called Megaton. Uh, and uh Someone comes to you and says, I'll pay you 500 caps, which early in the game is a substantial amount of money. I'll pay you 500 caps to set this de- detonation device on that so, so that I can just see it blow up for fun, which would mean killing an entire village of innocent people, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and 
the question is, uh, is it immoral to, to say yes? Well, it depends on how you're thinking about the game. And if you're a tinkerer, sometimes people will play the game one way. They'll say, no, I'm not going to do that. And then they'll go back again and they'll play it and they'll say yes, just to see what happens. Right. They, they want to see what's in the game. It's, it's like the Lego thing. What, what does the game have in it, right? What does the game have in it? Uh, and, and these are all frames that uh, the gamers actually use. Uh, I've interviewed them, and, and, uh, and I've also you know, monitored my own way of, of looking at games and read other people's accounts of games. And so uh, there's an awful lot of, um, you know, there's, there's an awful lot of uh, distancing that goes on there. And, and a lot of the players talked about how they sort of dissociate themselves from the, the narrative. Not everyone plays a game with the narrative being really realistic and real to them. And so um, when you see them doing violence, uh, the moral uh, value of those actions really changes depending on the frame that they, they bring into the game. So um, uh, I think for people who are really worried about people doing bad actions in games, whether it be violence or theft or whatever, uh, it's worth asking the flip side question. Um, if you were worried about people doing bad things in games because you think that it's immoral, then are you actively positively supporting players in doing positive things in games because clearly that's virtuous? Mm -hmm. Right? Right. Uh, because so often the question is just the one-way one. If you do a bad thing in a game, are you doing a bad thing? Well, let's do the flip side question. If you do a good thing in a game, are you actually doing a good thing? And most people intuitively go, well, pfft, if you save the village in a game, that's nothing. It's not real. Okay, that's probably a good argument. But if that's the case, then when you're doing a bad thing in a game, is it really such a big deal? Mm -hmm. I would argue that the weight that you give to the one, you should give to the other. And so if the, if the answer is, well, it's very troubling when people do bad things in games because it's, it's actually an evil action okay, then you should be actively supporting players who want to go and do good things in games. You should be saying that will make you a better person. And if the flip side of that seems ridiculous to you, then maybe you should reconsider the whole fear of the immoral action in the game. I think often we do these things in games um, because we are trying to understand the world. We're trying to explore. Our fiction does this. And the only difference here is that now we are actually playing with our fiction as opposed to, mm -hmm. you know, sitting and reading it. But, uh, you know, we've told stories for ages about violence. Uh, and it's not because we want it always. It's that we need to understand it as humans. Violence is a part of our world and we need to engage it. Um, there are healthy ways of engaging it and there are unhealthy ways of engaging it. And I think a lot of action films really go into the unhealthy side of things, where it's, it's just cool to see people die and blow up and blood all over the place. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of games that do that too, and I think that's problematic. And I think that when Christians start celebrating violence, that's a problem. Uh, but at the same time, to say that we should never engage it, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me.
I'd like to remind you when you listen to Dr. Kevin Scott here, we're talking about the book of Games and God, a Christian exploration of video games. So if you're here next week, we're going to be talking about cults. Not the cults are wrong and here's how you answer them, but how do you identify a cult and how do you escape a cult even more? If you have a Christian friend who's getting into a group and you think, I'm not sure about this group, what do you do? I'm going to have Don Vaynot here from Midwest Christian Outreach, and we're going to be talking about how to identify and how to escape a cult, even if it's even if it's explicitly Christian or Orthodox in many ways. Can the thinking be something that you want to avoid? So, if you're interested in that, come back next week. For now, let's get back to Dr. Kevin Scott talking about of games and God. You know, whenever anything I was about this is that the games kind of set the parameters. If I'm playing GoldenEye, I can't go in and say, I don't want to talk to you about what you're doing and why it's morally wrong to, to want to... <laughs> and then a couple of other examples I was thinking of is from the Zelda games. When I'm playing Ocarina of Time, when I fall into Death Mountain and there's big Dodongo there wanting to destroy me, I cannot have peace talks with a big dinosaur creature. And then if I'm playing Twilight Princess and I get to a part where the Yetta takes the part of the mirror I'm getting and suddenly gets possessed by an evil force and wants to kill me at that point, I can't say, you know, in the name of Jesus, be gone. No, I actually have to fight these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and uh, th- that brings up a really good point. And this is something that we actually talked about in my research, too. Mm-hmm. Um, the players felt that there was less moral and ethical um, weight to games where you really didn't have a choice. Yeah, You either play the game or you don't, basically. So mm-hmm. there are a lot of games where it's either shoot or be shot, and that's those are your only two options, yeah. basically. Mm-hmm. So you either play the game or you don't. But if you're going to play the game, there's really no moral weight to shooting someone simply because that's the only thing you can do, basically. Yeah. Um, I think that... That argument has its limits. <laughs> I mean, uh, you go, you know, you, you play a game where you go around and and you use the f- demonic forces to possess people. Um, you know, and you look at a game like that and you kind of go, okay, you know, is it <laughs> well, the game only allows you to do that or or you know be killed, so therefore it's mm-hmm. okay to do it. Well, I would argue that maybe we need to seriously consider about you know, is that a game that you should be playing at all, right? Yeah. Um, but it is true that uh, a lot of games have narrative premises where you just really don't have a choice. Uh, and so the, the moral and ethical weight of that decision is is quite a bit different uh, at that point. And, and uh, I'm still, I, I will, I, I'm honestly, I, I don't have a, I, I'm, I'm thinking that people might be listening to this and going, well, you should have this all figured out. You should have a clear answer. And, and the, the fact is, I, I don't. Uh, and I've I've been thinking deeply about this for years at this point, um, and and it really does come down to this this it's it's a gray zone it's a it's sort of an in between thing it is not like real life, but it is kind of like real life, mm-hmm. and uh, so uh, I think it's one of those things that you sort of it's contextual you have to be paying attention are you fascinated with the darkness of this game. Is this some? Are you? Is the 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 violence appealing to you? Yep. Uh, is is that why you play the game? Mm-hmm. Uh, if that is the case, then I think you have to think long and hard about that. Mm-hmm. I think that even if you really do enjoy the game, if 
if it is something that is encouraging a kind of violent attitude, you know, hatred towards other people, then I think you really have to seriously think about dropping that game uh, yeah. or yeah. thinking if you can play it a different way. But I think about Overwatch, for example, that I've been playing recently. And Overwatch is like lots of other sort of fun shooter games. And the fact that it's shooting is completely incidental to me. It's all about the the actual competition. It's right. more like a, a football game or a soccer game in, in many ways. It's and, just like and Mario Kart in that sense. Yeah, exactly. And and it's you don't really focus on the violence. It's not like I come away from that game feeling like I want to shoot something, mm. you know, or feeling like I really want to hurt someone. Uh, it's it's the same way when I I feel very similar to after I play a game of soccer. Yeah, it's you know it was a fun competition, or <laughs> sometimes it's not so fun because you know sometimes when you play sports games you come away angry and and upset because you didn't do well or some yeah. something happened on the field that wasn't very much fun, but. It's not because it's violent. It's because it's competition. Uh, yeah. And uh, competition doesn't always go well. And so, you finish uh, a game with your buds, and you don't want to go and kill each other. You go out and get pizza together. Yeah, exactly. And and Super Smash Brothers is a great example of this. I mean, oh, yes. it, and it's a brawler, right? Oh, you're yeah. You're punching people, and you're, you're shooting at things or, or you know, jumping around and, and smacking each other, holds and whatever else you you do in, in combat games like Street Fighter or whatever. Um uh, but it's so much fun to play games like that, right? Yeah. Um, there's a kind of camaraderie being built, and it, it is very much like playing a game of dodgeball or playing a game of, uh, you know, uh, football, football or, or yeah. uh, baseball or whatever it is that you're, you're into uh, at that point. It's 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 that the thrill of the competition. Yeah. And so for me, the, the key with the moral and ethical questioning is – do you see yourself being taken down some dark paths mentally and spiritually by this game? And if that's the case, then you need to really seriously think about it carefully. But I do think that people, you know, Christians who are spiritually attuned, who are, you know, seriously critical about the things that they play, and they actually investigate themselves, and they think about, you know, what is going on here, um, I think that th there is room for, for games that, on the face of it, look kind of violent. I mean, I can say for my part, playing games like Zelda and Final Fantasy and such that went over me, it's, you know, the action, the good versus evil, and the whole idea of trying to figure out how to beat this really big villain, how to get past this this stage, and it's just this big sense of accomplishment and such. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. Now, let's talk then about video game Addiction. I mean, we have to be clear what we're talking about here, because like I said, when Breath of the Wild came out, and again, I'm I'm mourning here when thinking about that, that I still haven't got to play this game. But <laughs> when it came out, I know many of my friends, very good, devout Christian friends, took a sabbatical from Facebook and pretty much everything else, and they were playing this game to see if they could finish it. Now, obviously, this is a problem of video game addiction, isn't it? Hmm. Yeah, so that's the other big one that I always end up talking about when I'm doing public uh, talks. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so uh, unhealthy playing and uh, violence in games. And yeah. uh, uh, with some good reason. Uh, video games are, uh, if you know anyone who is a gamer, you know that there is a tendency to uh, want to play a lot. Uh, yeah. Uh, because uh, and because people enjoy it, and just uh, one more lever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there, there are a lot of reasons that people um, 
uh, get into this stuff and and don't want to stop playing, right? So there's there's a number of things that we need to sort of walk through here. And the first thing is this: there is no clinical there is no clinical definition of video game addiction. It does not exist. Uh, it is not something that is agreed upon by the American Psychological Association or the American Medical Association, uh, and it is a fairly contested thing. Um, Psychologists are sort of working through this, uh, and there's a lot of disagreement within the psychological community. There does, on the other hand, seem to be fairly wide agreement uh, that there is such a thing as problem gaming. And anyone who knows a lot of gamers will eventually know someone who is playing in an unhealthy manner. Right. It, it just, and unhealthy at different levels, okay? So, uh, there are stories of people who lose their uh, their jobs, lose their uh, their significant others, lose you know, so because they can't stop playing. That's a very severe case, but there are lots more stories of people who uh, play and miss a meeting, or play and don't get to their homework, or play and you know that kind of stuff, which is much less severe, but is very very common. Um, so problem gaming seems to be a thing. Uh, but true addiction is, is another question altogether. And one of the things that psychologists wrestle with is when there is problem gaming, who is at fault? Uh, what, what is the, 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 the thing? And, and what a lot of psychologists have suggested is, in fact, that it's not necessarily the game itself that's the problem, that when they find cases of problem gaming, it is almost always related to some other psychological problem. So it's not the game itself, it's that the game becomes a coping mechanism for someone who is struggling with depression or who has lost a job or re had a recent breakup mm -hmm. with a significant other, or, you know, that kind of thing. And, and the game is just nicely tailored to help you escape those particular problems. Right. And then it's not really the game that's at fault, it's the... It's the uh, it's the uh, you know the, 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 the problem. Yeah, it's the problem that, that the person is facing at that point. That's the issue. Um, so uh, that is um, that's the psychological sort of scholarly side of things. There's also um, the uh, game industry practices here that are actually kind of important to talk about as well, and that is that there are, in fact, conscious attempts by some game makers, not all game makers, but some game makers to actually employ psychological theories and uh, in order to design games that are purposely hard for people to put down. Uh, they fake? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we we kind of we we kind of laugh about addictive games because uh, I mean, all game makers want to make a game that is hard to put down in a sense, right? right. Because you, you want you want a game that uh, is compelling because if it isn't, then it, then you've you know as a designer you haven't done your job properly. Mm -hmm. But there is also this whole okay, so behavioral psychology has found that people uh, play more compulsively if they do X, Y, or Z. Uh, in the game design, and therefore we're going to put those things in in order to hook people. Um, and that kind of very Machiavellian, kind of scary, psychological, manipulative uh, approach is in fact consciously employed by some game makers. Right. Most of these companies are in what's called the free-to-play space, and if you're not a gamer, um, free-to-play is are casual games that you can download and start playing for free, and usually they make their money by encouraging you to purchase things in the game. 
Um, and uh, the biggest games in the world now are actually in the free-to-play space. So I don't know if this number is still current, but last uh, spring I had heard from someone in the games industry that the game Clash of Clans uh, makes $8 million a day. And that works out to about over $3 billion a year. Uh, you do not have to play pay a cent to play Clash of Clans, but the game is designed in such a way that it's a lot easier if you pay uh, to, to play the game. And it is designed in such a way to sort of encourage you to make those payments, essentially. Um, and obviously, it's very successful. And uh, that is a serious problem. Uh, when these kinds of games first started invading the market, th there was some real worry about compulsive behavior that would lead people to spend tens of thousands of dollars when they really didn't have that kind of money to spend. And and um, uh, so that's a real that's a real other problem with this whole thing as well. Um, so I think when we we're talking about this as Christians, um, I, I think we we do need to grapple with this pretty seriously. Uh, I, I cannot tell you how many students I have seen over the years uh, at my university who gaming has been a bad distraction for them, and it has impacted their grades, in some mm -hmm. cases leading to failures or withdrawals or things like that. And again, I think usually in those cases, there's some other psychological stuff happening that people are struggling with depression or, um, you know, problems with their family or, or you know, whatever else that they're, they're uh, struggling with. But um, uh, games don't help uh, in those situations. They are convenient escapes. And, uh, uh, I think we have to monitor our gameplay pretty closely. And I say this as someone who would much rather play another round of Hearthstone than uh, grade a paper. And uh, there are more than a few uh, nights uh, every semester where uh, <laughs> the paper loses out, uh, and it shouldn't. Uh, so uh, I'm not saying this as someone who's you know managed all of this perfectly. Uh, but I do think that we, we do need to take the issue of, of uh, problem gaming seriously. Uh, it is a real issue. Uh, but at the same time, I don't think that we should overreact about it. So let me put it in a proper perspective. Um, if someone were to read, say, 30 hours a week, read books 30 hours a week, uh, which, which works out to you know roughly four hours a day, uh, we would look at that and we'd say, boy, that person reads a lot. But we'd probably almost say it admiringly. Right. You know, it would be something that we would be looking at and we go, you know, gosh, that, that is very impressive when someone does that. But if someone were to play 30 hours of games a week, which is four hours a day, I would challenge you to find too many people, non-gamers especially, yeah. who would not say there's a problem there, right? And what they would be tempted to use the word addiction at that point. They're playing so much that they're addicted. I never hear anyone say that person is addicted to reading. But I do hear people say that person is addicted to gaming. Right? And now, you can My argue, wife would tell you reading addictions do exist. She's married to one. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, like, my, my oldest daughter, she's uh, 13 and... and uh, she is um, she's she's a voracious reader. I mean, <laughs> she's just showing me the stack of books that she went through this week. And sometimes we have a hard time getting her to you know set the table or do her homework or whatever because she's busy reading these novels. 
Um, she likes games too, by the way. Um, Good. But but especially uh, novels. She just she just reads them like crazy, and very few parents I know of would be worried about that. But if we're just talking about straight amount of time, why would we not call that addiction, and we would call the other one addiction? So I think that that is a really, really important, uh, you know, discrepancy that we need to pay attention to. That is one of those indicators that maybe it's not actually video games that are the problem. Maybe it's our cultural presuppositions that are the problem. Uh, so I, I think that that's, that's really, really important for us to keep in mind when we're talking about games. Now, of course, you can also argue about, well, the cognitive benefits of reading are better than, you know, like they make you smarter than, than games. And we can get into that maybe in a mm. few minutes. But um, that's actually sort of beside the point. We're talking about amount of time, right? And uh, the fact is that, uh, that uh, you can spend just as much time on another medium as games and people won't say that you're addicted. So uh, I think, you know, when people are on the outside, they have to understand that just because you don't like games or it doesn't appeal to you doesn't mean that it's an invalid activity. Um, I think the bigger question is we, we, have to, we have to be evaluating again on self-evaluating uh, of the effects. Is playing games taking you away from other healthy stuff? I mean, we could talk about any number of things that it could take you away from. I mean, if you're a student, homework, if you're a professor, grading, um, if you're, uh, you know, your devotion life, your prayer life, uh, yeah. uh, your, um, you know, relationships with others. Uh, are games doing that? Uh, if, if you're playing five hours, a game, five hours of games a week, which is not very much, uh, uh, but it's doing those things. It's taking you away from your homework and it's taking you away from other things. Uh, then maybe you have to cut down. If you're doing 20 hours of games a week and you're still holding down a good job, you have good relationships and, and you're doing what you need to do, you're fulfilling your obligations, then maybe 20 hours is a good level for you, right? Mm -hmm. So it's more, it's not a question of amount. It's more a question of mind space. Is mm -hmm. it, what's it doing to you? How much is it taking up? Is it, is it occupying you? Is it taking you away from things? And if it is, if it's doing those bad things, if it's sort of pulling you away, then you need to start identifying the root issue there. Is it the games? Is it, you know, is it games particularly that are doing this to you? Or is there some other problem in your life that you're trying to run away from? In which case, you got to face that. you got to start dealing with that particular problem, however that means, counseling or prayer or whatever it is that you need to do in that particular uh, case. Um, uh, and maybe sometimes it does mean cutting back on games or eliminating games altogether, but uh, it may be that there are other things that you need to deal with first. one before we follow up that you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. My guest here is Dr. Kevin Scoot here. He's a professor who specializes in video games, of all things. And if you want to support the work that we're doing here, well, you can go to my website, deeperwatersapologetics.com. 
helps support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries on the side. There's a link in there. It takes you to Risen Jesus. You've gone to the right place. That's the ministry of my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. And you make your donation there. You get in touch with me or my wife, Allie, or Mike or Debbie and say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. Make sure we get your donation. It will be tax deductible. You can also buy ebooks that I've either written or co-written, such as A Creed for All Ages, The Apostles' Creed, and Today's Christian, um, Defining Inerrancy, Groundless, God and Natural Disasters. And, guys, you can also do something. You can buy jewelry with us. We got a link at our site to do that, too. Because, you know, guys, you might not have noticed this, but women tend to like jewelry. I mean, my wife even has an allergy to knicker. She still likes to wear jewelry when she can. And if you want to get those good brownie points with her, this is a good way to do it. And whatever you purchase for our store, 25% of it goes to deeper waters. And like I, tell, like I tell you guys, you can buy something and you can buy it to make up for that screw-up that you recently did with a woman in your life. Or you can buy something as insurance for that big screw-up that you're going to soon make with that woman in your life. Now, Dr. Scoot, do you have uh, any organization you'd like to see people donate to? Well, uh, I'll probably talk about this a little bit later, but uh, my university is is one that's close to my heart, Trinity Western University, mm-hmm. and, and uh, we are trying to... Uh, Make God's kingdom real in in the world of higher education and uh, impact uh, Canada and around the world. Uh, we have a lot of American students uh, at our university as well, and and uh, uh, so Trinity Western University is something that's close to my heart. Uh, if you're at all interested in learning more about us, you can go to our website, www.twu.ca. Uh, I also am starting up uh, a game development program at TWU, uh, and so I think maybe a little bit later in the podcast we can talk a little bit about uh, uh, Christians making games, and I can uh, explain a little bit more about that. We are just starting uh, that process up, uh, hope to launch next fall, and and we are looking for partners to help with that uh, financially and and in terms of recruiting, and uh, we don't actually have a a web page up yet that's going to be up in the next month or two. Um, but, uh, if people are at all interested in, in that, uh, you can certainly contact me, uh, through TWU and, uh, uh, we'd, uh, we'd be happy to, to have a conversation about that as well. Yeah. And to get back to addiction, <clears throat> right quick, before we go on to the next topic. So when the new game comes out though, and everyone is suddenly playing that one for a few days or so, that doesn't really qualify as addiction, does it? Not in my books. Uh, I mean, t- temporary, uh, you know, uh, setting aside time for a major thing. I mean, in the Middle Ages, uh, there was festivals uh, <laughs> half the year for various saints. Uh, and it was, you know, a time of community coming together and celebrating and not doing a whole lot of work. And and I think that's just a, that's a normal kind of thing. People do this in all cultures. It's not just a Western thing. Every Everyone does this. Uh, and uh, I think that it's the same kind of thing. You're taking a bit of a holiday to do a, a cultural thing, and for many people, they, they do this together, uh, or they talk about it together. Uh, and uh, uh, so, you know, a, a temporary holiday to, to play a game, that's not addiction. No, addiction is when uh, games 
regularly overtake things that um, you should be doing otherwise. And and I think sort of temporary obsessions with novels or movies or television shows, yeah. or, you know, binge watching, uh, uh, playing a game, that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about problem gaming. We're talking about um, gaming that regularly interferes with, with everyday life and the things that you should be doing. And let's talk about yet another controversial thing with video games that people talk about. I can think of two characters right off. Tifa Lockhart from Final Fantasy VII and Lara Croft from the Tomb Raider series. Let's just say there was one reason guys really like these characters in games. And, and you've said you get three daughters, and I'm mm-hmm. sure you wouldn't like them depicted the way a lot of women are depicted in video games, because only mm-hmm. in an RPG can a woman be wearing a very, very light bikini-type armor, and somehow it's protective. Right. Yeah, the chainmail bikini is, is one of the great jokes of, of the uh, fantasy gaming world, mm. because... Uh, you know, it leaves the the torso completely unprotected, but somehow uh, the game mechanics respect it, uh, and it and it does highlight um, a long term kind of uh, uh, sexism and denigration of women, uh, uh, sort of a, a representation of women as really only good for their their looks and and not for much else. Um, you get more complicated characters with a, someone like Lara Croft, who is, you know, definitely highly sexualized, but is also highly capable and, mm. and not just a princess waiting to be rescued. Um, but uh, it's certainly a mixed blessing. Um, and that that kind of trope is a very long-running one in video games. Uh, it is uh, it is one that uh, has that for many years really kept women out of the gaming because they were seeing characters that they just didn't want to play with and and because uh, it was offensive or it was irritating. Uh, and gaming culture itself is often um, deeply hostile to women, uh, that uh, women are patronized or hit on or uh, screamed at uh, uh, by guys, uh, and uh, both in online uh, settings and in, in real life sometimes. Uh, and uh, that problem does continue to today. Um, that having been said, uh, the good news is that gaming has become, uh, it's just like the violence thing. Uh, mm. If you want to look for stuff that does not have offensive sexual content, mm-hmm. uh, it's not hard. There's lots and lots of games out there uh, that, are, that don't sort of indulge that sort of uh, swimsuit model eye candy kind of uh, thing uh, where uh, girls can play games where they're the hero instead of the prize to be won. Um, and and that kind of thing is, is uh, certainly a positive. And even in the time since I wrote the, the book and published it a few years back, uh, I would say that there's in many ways been some really positive steps forward. But the whole Gamersgate controversy um, that actually made national news media a couple of years ago um, is actually a very good uh, example of the fact that it's not that that, that traditional uh, devaluing of women has not gone away. And uh, the, the kind of hostility, whether you like the politics of the people who were at the center of this or not, the fact that uh, people who disagreed with them, uh, you know, the, 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 the people who were complaining about uh, Gamersgate um, received death threats and rape threats and uh, had to leave their house because they, they were documented online so that uh, harassers could actually go find them in, in, in real life. 
that indicates something of the the, the residual uh, hostility and problem that no one should have to deal with that. Uh, it's it's games. It's you know it's generally for entertainment, uh, and uh, that's a, a loss of perspective. So, for me as a Christian, what's critical is that both men and women can live out their calling to be God's image bearers. And um, I realize that within the Christian community, there are a lot of different interpretations of, of how that uh, should play out. And I don't want to get into the, the very contested areas there because there's, you know, there's, there's lots of big fights within the church about this. But I think that is something that we can at least all agree on, that uh, everyone should be treated with respect, uh, whether they are a man or a woman, uh, and uh, that everyone should be uh, given the, the ability to live out their, their calling as, as God's image bearers. And uh, that's the case that I, I make in the book as well, that uh, uh, there should be that space. And I do think that the good news is that, the, that uh, as I say, that it is moving in a positive direction there. And I'm, I'm not worried about my daughters playing games because uh, there are lots of games out there that they can play that are not, you know, disturbing and problematic and, and uh, that kind of stuff. Can you tell us a bit about Gamersgate in case some people are, are listening and haven't heard about it? Yeah, sorry. Uh, so for those who didn't hear about this, because it did make national news headlines, <laughs> it was uh, not a proud moment for the gaming community. Um, there was, uh, uh, the problem is it's a very complicated story. So, and, and I don't really want to get into all the details. Uh, uh, but basically, a, a gaming journalist, a female gaming journalist, uh, broke up with someone, uh, and, uh, her, uh, ex-boyfriend, uh, wrote a letter about, uh, how, uh, she was sleep, she was sleeping around and had been cheating on him with another game journalist. Oh, no, sorry. She was a game developer. Sorry. She was a female game developer. And uh, she broke up with this guy. This guy wrote a letter about how she got preferential treatment in gaming journal in, in uh, gaming coverage because she was sleeping with uh, uh, a games journalist. And this blew up in the gaming community. And uh, the game and, and basically the, the people who were upset about this, the gamers who were upset about this, took on this label of gamer Gamergate, arguing that the uh, the gaming press was full of um, uh, people who were corrupting journal journalism, games journalism in the name of um, political correctness and, and things like that. Um, the people who were accused, the, the journalists and, and the game developers who were accused of, of being, um, uh, you know, pro-political correctness, the, the term that was used was social ju justice warrior, uh, and that was a very that was seen as a denigration, a, a bad term. Uh, uh, the social justice warriors uh, pushed back and said, "No, this is about you being sexist." Uh, and there was a huge fight on Twitter. Uh, it got very nasty, and that was when many of the uh, the gamer gators, the people who were against what they saw as political correctness, started you know doing death threats and uh, um, doing some of the things that I mentioned there and. I realize that probably people listening to this podcast will have a lot of different political viewpoints, and so I know this gets into some controversial stuff. But I think we can all agree that leveling death threats at people of a different, different, uh, and, and rape threats and, and things like that of a different political persuasion as you is is not an acceptable 
uh, Christian way of doing it. And it does reveal sort of a, a tension over gender relations within the video game world. Mm-hmm. I agree entirely. Now, let's talk about making video games, because you do have something in there you want to get to that, too. Absolutely. And I think one of the big mistakes we often make is kind of like when we make movies and such in TV shows. We make movies and TV shows that other Christians want to go and see, but no one else will really care to go and see. So we're very good at reaching ourselves. Right. I think that's that's exactly, that's a very, very good, succinct way of summarizing mm-hmm. it. Um, Christian uh, culture makers, uh, when they make explicitly Christian culture, are usually only preaching to the choir. Now, preaching to the choir is often used as a, a, a denigrating term, and I don't think that's always fair, because I think it's okay to reach Christians with Christian material for Christians. Um, but if we think that that is reaching out to the general world, then we are deeply mistaken at that point. Um, so there's nothing wrong with making an explicitly Christian film. There is nothing wrong with making an explicitly Christian game. There's nothing wrong with making an explicitly Christian podcast. These are all good things. They are reaching. They are reaching and teaching Christians. And as long as we understand it as such, I think that that's that's fine. Uh, but I think we are also called as Christian culture makers to enter into the the larger Christian arena and to bring Jesus to people in a way that is real to them, in a way that that, that will change their lives. And on this score, uh, I think if you interviewed most Christian game makers, they would agree with me when I say we have largely failed on that count. Um, There are very, very few uh, explicitly Christian games out there that are well-made and that reach anyone other than a clearly Christian audience at that point. So, uh, this is something that I wrote about in the book at length after interviewing a whole bunch of Christians in the game industry and talking about, okay, so what should be the attitude of Christians going to work in the games industry? And really, a lot of what we're talking about is true of Christians working in the film industry, in uh, you know publishing, in uh, radio, in television. Um, uh, so in some senses, this is not new, but uh, because Christians are so far behind on games, it is sort of new to this particular sector. And uh, there's a couple of different ways to approach this. There's one way to approach Christians in games is to talk about making games that are, in fact, explicitly Christian. And uh, on that score, like I said, the the, the results to this point have been pretty weak uh, in general. Most of the games are very poor quality, uh, reach a very small audience, uh, tend to be on the preachy side, um, and often aren't particularly fun to play, uh, which is really the the main <laughs> measure right there. There mm-hmm. are a few exceptions. Uh, I have been sort of evol- involved in a very light advisory capacity with a, a game called the Etherlight, which is spelled A-E-T-E-T-H-E-R, uh, light, L-I-G-H-T, one word, Etherlight, uh, which is an explicit um, allegory to Christ- that teaches the Bible. Uh, but it is done in the form of a, a very fun for kids. It's, it's aimed at sort of uh, early teen er, er, um, ages. Uh, it's done in in a way that it's it's actually it's a very fun game to play, and the artistic quality of it is very high. And I, I do recommend that game to anyone who's interested in something like that. And because it's written as an allegory. Um, if you were not a Christian, you certainly would not necessarily find it preachy. You might not even necessarily 
catch all of the references to Bible stuff, but they actually are marketing it for Sunday school classes and stuff like that, and they have appropriate study guides that go with it. And uh, my my kids have played it, and they really like it, and uh, that's a good sign. And uh, it's uh, it's it's a well done game, but it, it's really sort of a standalone in many ways. Um, so that side of things could certainly develop. I, we still haven't seen a sort of a Veggie Tales for video games uh, mm-hmm. kind of moment uh, yet, and I think that uh, it's it's it, there's nothing you know on the horizon yet. I think the Ether Light could be that, but it it, it hasn't reached a huge uh, audience yet, uh, and so that's something that's worth spreading the word about. Uh, but I think that's certainly one valid thing for Christians to work on. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the Christians I talk to. Um, said, you know, a lot of being Christian in the game gaming industry is is not necessarily about you you know pu- publishing games that are explicitly Christian necessarily. There's a couple of different ways that that game workers can can do this. One of them is is the the allegory thing that telling stories that sort of is sort of stealth in uh, Jesus. I mean, it's, it's sort of the the C.S. Lewis gold standard with the Chronicles of Narnia, right? The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is, is an explicit Christian allegory, and mm-hmm. Aslan dying is, is, is you know, the, 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 the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Uh, uh, and and it, it's a fairly obvious thing, but even if you don't like that message or you don't know it, you can still read the book, and, it, and it's just a great story in and of itself, right? And that's what a lot of Christian game makers are aspiring to do. But I think even more broadly, um, just telling stories full of hope and joy and peace and and making games that are are you know high quality and um, you know do something different uh, you know nonviolent creative games those are wonderful to do and they and they they build God's kingdom simply by encouraging healthy creativity and and uh, a lot of Christians are are aiming to do that and and what's great is that there seems to be an increasing body of Christian game makers out there now that are starting to think about that kind of thing. And uh, the the capacity of, of uh, Christian game makers to lead the culture and do something really different and, and powerful is, is what I'm really excited about. And uh, recently there was a game that came out, uh, I think it was the spring of uh, 2015 when it came out, uh, called That Dragon Cancer. Um, and this is not a fun game. Uh, it is a it is a, a heavily narrative game. It's very point and click. There's it's actually almost not a game. It's it's really the, the mechanics of it are very very simple. Uh, it's it's more like an interactive movie, but uh, we call it a game because it kind of fits in that category. Um, and it's the story of Ryan and Amy Green and their their uh, uh, child who was diagnosed with terminal cancer when he was just over a year old. And then, uh, you know, managed to make it for four more years before he finally succumbed to the cancer. And the game is all about their family's journey with this thing. And it is a groundbreaking video game. It is. I recommend it to everyone. I, it's not an easy game to play. And if you have, you know, suffered from cancer or have cancer in your family, it is especially difficult to play through just emotionally. Um, but it is one of the most powerful pieces of art in the video game world that has been done for the last several years. And it was widely recognized with awards and, and you know, press and, and all the rest of that because of that. And 
this family is a Christian family, and they talk about their faith throughout the entire game, and it is it is very explicit. It is not an evangel uh, even evangelistic game. It's not trying to proselyze people, you know, to to convert them to Christianity. It's a Christian family talking about their walk through suffering with God and telling this story in a way with such great integrity and such power uh, that it cannot help but you know uh, transform the world. Around them, uh, and and it, it has. It's it's made a major impact in people's lives. And these are Christians doing groundbreaking art in in the world of video games. And to me, that's a powerful model. I I don't think that everyone has to do tearjerkers and and really emotionally difficult games. I think you can have fun, frothy games uh, as well. There's a, a guy named Jay Tolan who uh, does a a, a game uh, about. Uh, uh, a clown, sort of a weird-looking clown, going around and and uh, doing a story adventure, and it's it's a uh, a powerful game too. Uh, but it's fun. It's sort of silly. Um, and I am struggling to remember the name of the game. I can't remember it. Uh, uh, so I'll, I'll uh, maybe you can put that up on your podcast at some point. But Jay Tolan, T H O L E N, uh, does some really interesting game work as well, and he's a Christian. And it's not, you know, it's not like necessarily deep and, and profound, but it's it's well done art. Uh, and, and that's a really, really important thing as well. Um, my passion for this is to get Christians into the industry. And this gets into the third way that Christians talk about impacting the industry is just by being there, being salt and light and being in the boardrooms and having discussions about things, maybe not even affecting the story of a game, the genre of a game, but building relationships with other people in the industry so that they can actually show what it means to love Jesus and how that can change people's lives. And um, you can do that in public relations. You can do that uh, in, you know, as an animator, you can do that as a business person. Uh, All of those, uh, you know, all of those roles, we need Christians in that industry so that they can show people, uh, they can show people what it means to follow Jesus uh, in a way that that transforms lives. Maybe not in in the game itself, but in the day to day work of the people in the industry. And so this is I mentioned earlier that we are setting up a game development program at Trinity Western University, and this is the idea behind it: uh, that we want to train people, we want to train young students, Christians, to be great game makers and to go into the world and to share. Um, you know who they are, and uh, uh, and in so doing, build the kingdom of God uh, in the world. Uh, uh, whichever part of the industry we're talking about, we, we're going to train. They're going to come in and they're going to work as a studio. We're going to we're going to have them specialize in one of five areas. They can be designers and writers, or they can be game artists, or they can do sound and music design for games, or they can do the software side of things, mm-hmm. or they can do the marketing and management side of things. Those are all things that we're going to be training. Christians to do so that they can go out and they can be prepared to actually make a difference in the industry. Uh, And we hope to launch with our first group of students uh, next fall. Uh, The the province here is still approving the program, but we're we're hoping to to launch it next next September. And uh, uh, we're really, really hoping that this will be a way to make a difference uh, in in a gaming industry that in many ways, uh, you know, there's not a strong Christian presence there. Well, I did follow the little breadcrumbs you were dropping, and I did some looking up just now. I think the game you're looking for is Dropsy the Dropsy. Clown. Dropsy. There we go. Yeah. Yep. Dropsy. And when you were talking about that dragon cancer, I couldn't but think that that's probably going to be very relevant to many people, because as you probably know, last week, uh, 
the Krishna Projects were mourned the loss of Nabil Qureshi to cancer. Ah, right. And, yeah, and my wife and I watched the funeral online and such a great impact. And think that there's a game out there about that. That's really incredible. So, and you've already talked about a place that people can go to if they want to be making games. And what other steps do you think someone wanting to go into the, to the game making industry should follow? Well, I talked to someone who uh, one of the guys I interviewed for my for my book uh, is a very successful game maker, uh, and uh, he talked about what one of the things that's really really important. Uh, however, you're going to do this is don't go into the industry just because you have a passion for God, yeah. although that you know is is clearly important. Um, go into the industry because you you're going to be a good game maker. Because if you're not going to be a good game maker and you go in for missionary reasons, you, you might almost do more damage than good, um, mm -hmm. simply because you're not going to get the respect that you need there. So it's really, really important to Christians who are interested you know, in gaming as a, the gaming industry as a mission field and games as a mission field. You need to understand that in order to gain credibility, you need to be good at what you're doing. Uh, and uh, there's lots of different university programs out there where uh, you can make uh, video games. And so mine, of course, uh, I'm excited about because there are very few Christian universities and colleges that are doing this. I, as far as I know, there's the only other program I know of really that, that's very strong in this regard is, is Oklahoma Christian University. But mm -hmm. uh, I, I really believe in our program and I think it'll prepare Christians to, to go into that world. But you don't have to go to a Christian university to do that. Um, there are other good programs out there. The key is that if you're going to get into the industry, maybe not even formal university training is absolutely necessary, although I think it's a real benefit and is more and more common nowadays in game workers. Um, but if you're going to do it, you need to get good at it. You need to get good at it. Well, however that happens, you know, do our, our program at Trinity Western University, do a program at a big university, state school. Um, you know, just do a standard computing science degree or do a, an art degree, animation degree, um, or, or just take a few courses in those areas and then, you know, self-train. Whatever it is that you do, you really, really need to get good at it so that you can gain respect and you can gain, gain credibility so that when you speak in that industry, people actually will listen to you. Uh, and I think that that's a really, really important piece of advice. Uh, there's lots of different avenues to get into the games industry. None of them are easy. Uh, all of them are difficult. Uh, I'm, I'm excited about my program, but I can't guarantee my students that they will absolutely get the job that they want. Uh, mm. we, we're going to do our best to equip them, but it's, it's a competitive world. Uh, it's a competitive industry to get into. But uh, it's, it's really, really important that you get good at it. And so for me, that's, like a, that's a primary calling for our program at Trinity Western U University. We want to make sure that we are training students who will be valuable to employers, who will really have a clear artistic vision, know how to work in a budget, know how to work on a team, know how to be lifelong learners. These are all things that are critical to succeeding in the industry. You know, we've only got about five or six minutes left of discussion time, so let's try and cover one other section very briefly. And that's that I remember when I lived in Charlotte, sure after I got married even, my wife knew every Sunday night I was going to go to some friend's house. They were identical twins, grooms in my wedding. We were going to play Smash Brothers until 9 p.m. or so, and then their dad would take us out, and we'd all go bowling together. And that was my guy's night out, mm -hmm. and she knew about it. 
Uh, every mm-hmm. now and then she carves, she wanted something, and sometimes, depending on what she wanted, I could be heading straight home. But mm-hmm. I think a lot of us who are gamers need to know about the social side of gaming, including how can we use this with evangelism? Absolutely. Um, so that's a, that's a great topic. Uh, and again, we don't have a lot of time, so I'll try to be really quick here. Um, gaming is inherently social, and that's a very powerful thing. It builds community. Those of you who are not gamers probably don't understand this, but it's one of those things where if you're at a gaming convention or something like that, you can sit down with complete strangers and strike up friendships simply because you have the game to tie mm. yourself together. And it's true of a lot of other hobbies. I mean, if you're in stamp collecting, you're into, uh, you know, bird watching, whatever it is, you know, people who do things together tend to build connections. But gaming is such a widespread one, and it, and it really does form a great basis for socialization, uh, for, for really getting to know each other uh, and knowing complete strangers. And yes, uh, that can be an in for evangelization, absolutely. Um it's interesting that Christian gamers often like to stick together because there is a certain amount of hostility in certain parts of gaming culture towards Christianity. It's not universal by any stretch of the imagination. Most people are fine with you being Christian and don't really care one way or the other. But uh, it's uh, one of those things where uh, it's certainly uh, a world that can use a Christian presence. Mm-hmm. Now, I think and this this does get into what do you count as healthy evangelism? Uh, you know what is was it a positive way to approach evangelism? I think nowadays in most of these cultures, uh, preaching at people is uh, uh, is a non-starter. It is yeah. the, the surest way to uh, to turn people off and uh, shut their ears to uh, the gospel of Christ. And what I think is really really important is building relationships with people, and mm-hmm. thankfully. Games are great for that. You know, uh, if you're really serious about making a difference for Jesus in the gaming world, go find a non-Christian guild, join it, and just make friends there. You know, and and that to me is one of the most powerful things you can do because once you get to you get invested in other people's lives, it will just come out naturally based on who you are uh, and in the conversations that you have, and the conversations get really big. This gaming group that I'm you know, part of uh, occasionally on Tuesday nights, a board gaming group, but we do get into some really interesting discussions sometimes. Uh, and they know, you know, the non-Christians in the group know which of us are believers and why and what we believe. And and uh, that hasn't necessarily converted them or brought them to Christ, but it's it's a presence of Jesus in their life. And uh, I think that that's, that's really, really powerful. And I think that... Uh, you know, people going into the uh, into gaming communities with that kind of attitude that I'm just going to be salt and light, that I'm going to be friends with people, can have a major impact for the kingdom that way. Yeah, the man who was the best man at my wedding, he was my roommate when I moved to seminary, and we're good friends to this day. How did it start? He saw me on a theology forum that I'm still a part of, really like what he saw, and he included in his message to me, a Final Fantasy avatar. The friendship <laughs> was sealed from that point on, and when we talk, a lot of times, it's still Final Fantasy, Final Fantasy, Final Fantasy. And this is the way a lot of us think. You make instant best friends. And I say that if you're a Christian and you're really good at video games, yeah. people will respect you too. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So, so go out and... Be the best gamer you can because it's for the glory of God, you know? Mm-hmm. 
Well, Dr. Shoot, I have to say, this has been a fascinating talk. And, you know, we've really only scratched the surface on so many topics because there's other things you could discuss, such as educational value of video games and such. But um, if people want to get the book, it's Of Games and God, A Christian Exploration of Video Games. As of this recording, the Kindle version is 11.53 and the paperback is 11.31. And as I was telling you before the show started, this is one book that when I reached the end, I realized, wait, that was the last page? Like, I, I wanted to keep going. I was kind of disappointed there wasn't more to say in here. And hopefully there'll be even more volumes and such coming out. Um, Dr. Shoot, do you have a, a blog, a website, an email, a way that people can get in touch if they want to find out more, or perhaps a way they can play you in a game if they want to do that? <laughs> well, uh, maybe the gaming with me might be a little difficult because I'm not regularly in any one game long enough to actually uh, meet people that way. I, I tend to flip from one thing to the other uh, pretty pretty quickly uh, just because I need to try different games. But there are a couple of different websites um, that I, I would steer you to. Uh, if you want to know about my academic program, the School of the Arts, Media, and Culture at Trinity Western University, you can go to twu.ca forward slash SAMC, S-A-M-C, um, and you can find out about some of the programs that we have there. Uh, if you're interested in uh, the further conversation about Christianity and video games, there are a couple of sites that I would I would push you towards. Um, there is uh, a website called Think Christian, um, and that's from Reframe Media. And I actually don't have the URL off the top of my head, but think if you Google Think Christian, you'll find it, all one word. Uh, and uh, I do some writing there sometimes. Uh, so does uh, uh, a number of other uh, very talented uh, writers who are, are uh, deep thinkers about games. Uh, there is a website uh, called GameChurch.com, and mm -hmm. I mentioned it in my last chapter, and it's funny because I'm almost critical of them in my last chapter, but months after I had finished the, the, the manuscript, I got in touch with them, and really uh, the, the ministry has changed quite a bit since I wrote that, and I wish I could rewrite that chapter because it is an amazing, it is an amazing resource, and the man who started at Mikey Bridges is an amazing guy, and uh, I would just uh, encourage people. There's a quite a growing community there. Some great writing and some really good thinking and some videos and and everything else. And uh, uh, you could also check out ChristandPopCulture.com, which is another good place for for discussions about uh, pop culture in general from a Christian perspective. And uh, lots of of interesting conversation going on in all of those areas. Not necessarily at a scholarly level always, but uh, that's probably a good thing uh, for for many people. And and uh, some great, uh, some great conversations, and I would encourage you to look at all of those. We also do have a Facebook page for of Games and God, and you certainly welcome to to like us there. And when I post things infrequently, uh, then it, it shows up in your feed, and and uh, you can check us out there too. I think it's thinkchristian.reframemedia.com. There Is we go. It? Yes. Yeah. And do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave with the deeper waters audience? Um, you know what. Video games are a major force in our culture, whether you like them or not, uh, and uh, it's important for us as the church to engage them uh, like we engage uh, all other aspects of our culture. And uh, the idea behind of Games and God was not actually to provide a bunch of answers, but to get a bunch of conversations going so that the church will actually uh, engage this really, really important part uh, of, of our cultural landscape. And uh, I hope that if you are not a gamer, that you are willing to, uh, you know, uh, learn a little bit about this world, even if you're never actually going to play video games on a regular basis. And uh, 
learn to understand the people that are involved. And those of you who are gamers, uh, to, uh, to be salt and light uh, in that world, to, to build the kingdom of God uh, in, in big ways, yes, but also in little ways, just the way that you carry yourself and the way that you interact with the people and the way that you compete and, and the kinds of things that you say and the kind of things that you do. Well, I'd like to thank you for coming on. Hopefully we'll see you back here again sometime. <clears throat> thank you. I'd like yeah. to be back sometime. Well, I'd like to remind everyone that next week we have Don Vaynard on. Come out, cults, what they are, how to recognize them, and how to escape them. For now, I'm Nick Peters, signing off and wishing you some good gaming. Bye for now.